if you're going to step up and lead, you better be good and you better be able to take some heat, right? No, no pun intended. Because um, if you're not, those type A personalities will eat you for breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. They'll chew you up and spit you out. Welcome to the episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and today I'm talking to Peter McKenzie from Rincon Property Management. My man, thanks for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I'm excited for this interview for a couple of different reasons. I think you're, the way that you backed into property management is going to be interesting to talk about. It's non-traditional. The way that 99% of the people in this industry get in was like, well, I own some properties. And then somebody asked me if I could manage some of theirs as well. And the next thing you know, I'm going to run in a management company. And that wasn't you. You got into it from a different kind of situation. So tell me a little bit about your background and how this came to be for you. Yeah, happy to. So always serial entrepreneur type of a person. Like when I was eight years old, I was, you know, had a five gallon bucket of sponge and the, the dishwashing liquid from the kitchen sink, washing cars in the neighborhood for $5, right? So I've always had that in me. And that hustle impulse. Yeah, just can't sit still, always looking at opportunities and angles and things like that, um, which is good, but I, you know, that side of me, I started and failed a few businesses along the way, but I also had the other side, which is this blue collar worker. I worked for the fire department, secure, safe career for the, you know, the next 30 years. So I had that side of me as well. Mm -hmm. And those two things don't really marry up, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, being an entrepreneur is very like uh, freeing, like you're as good as you're going to be. And if you're good at it, you're going to make money. And if you're not good at it, you're not going to make money, right? You're going to... There's truth in it. Yeah. Whereas the fire department working for the government, that is not the case, right? Like you're a cog in a wheel. And as long as you show up and you don't do something, you know, really grievous, you're going to have a job and you're going to be just fine. So that dichotomy was weird for me. And I didn't... My background is I didn't come from money or privilege like I was raised by a single mom we were poor we struggled so the fire department provided this safety mm -hmm. and security blanket that I never had really so you know trying to leave it which I eventually did was extremely tough like the risk hard. piece was hard yeah so the way I did it was I started all these businesses on my time off from the fire department shouldn't say all these businesses. I tried a couple businesses, the last one being Rencon. Um, but I had the luxury that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't have, which is I had a steady paycheck coming in mm -hmm. and I had a lot of time off. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know about the firefighter schedule is you work 24 hour shifts, you get a fair amount of time off. So on my time off, I was hustling and grinding as an entrepreneur where all the other firemen I worked with were surfing, motorcycle riding, traveling, whatever they were doing for fun. And I was the guy who was out trying to do a second thing, mm -hmm. which, you know, wasn't probably that popular with the typical firefighter stereotype, but that's how I was doing it. So anyway, how I backed into the, the management company is I had invested in rental properties myself, which I think is fairly standard um, and didn't really like property management companies. 
the options that, and I was investing out of state. So I worked with a lot of different management companies. And I mean, if we're being honest, the average management company, not that good. Right. I mean, obviously we're connected through NARPM and I think the bar is higher, Mm -hmm. but for the people that aren't, let's say for the non-professional property management. Sure. Sure. So I personally hired and fired a lot of companies, got to the point where I was like, this isn't rocket science. This transaction is very basic, very easy to understand. I, you rent my house for a period of time. I'll fix things when they break. You give me the rent, like at its most basic form. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So I, being the serial entrepreneur, I go, I'm going to open a management company in my area where I'm at, mm-hmm. because if they are terrible all over the country, pretty sure they're ter- terrible here as well. And I had some limited interactions with the companies in my area and none of the interactions were positive. So that's what I did. It was me and another fireman where we said, let's start a management company. We didn't have real estate licenses. We didn't have anything. So we got licensed. We didn't have a broker's license, which you are required in California. So we partnered up with a broker, got on Craigslist, started calling for rent by owner people, Mm. got our first client. And like Mm. from there, it was... The rest of the story. So that's how I kind of how it came about. So how long was that ramp of you running and growing the management company in that capacity before you went full time with it? So the management company technically started in 2014 and I left the fire department in 2021. So So you stuck with it for for a number of years there. Yeah. So The first couple of years I had a partner and that really didn't work out. So we ended up, I bought him out and then started to take it more serious. So I would, I don't say I wasted the first couple of years, but there were other issues that we were working through. Sure. And so, and then I didn't get connected with NARPM right off the bat. So once I tied in with the right network, had the freedom of owning the company by myself, was able to take it more serious and grow as an entrepreneur to where I could turn it into what it is today. Where did you and I first run into each other? We've known each other for a while, but I don't remember where we first crossed paths. That's a good question. <laughs> Probably at a conference, maybe? I don't know. I know we hiked the canyon together. Yeah. I've seen you at multiple conferences. That's a mystery. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and by the way, my ter- my memory is terrible, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling's mutual. Yeah. So the journey that you're on right now, growing the business, I want to hear about what's worked for you. One of the ways that I experience you as somebody that is willing to experiment and try different things. Mm -hmm. I've seen you lean into the sales and marketing side in a way that's interesting because I can tell you get a little something out of it. Mm -hmm. You're interested in that side of the business. With everything you've tried over the last couple of years, where have you invested time and it just did not pay off? suck net negative and where have you struck gold so i think what didn't work was for sure what didn't work is the belief that no one could do it as good as me Mm. that's a terrible like that's just death to a business right and i think it's really common like a lot of owners founders have that belief once i gave that up and grew past it, whether it was from reading books or podcasts or whatever, or mentors, and started to really believe that it's okay if I don't think I'm going to be the best at something, I need to give somebody else the opportunity to do it. Once I got out of my own way, that's when it paid off. Because 
as I get older, as I mature more, I'm more clear on what my talent is. And it's not operating a management company. It's not, we were talking about systems and processes. That's not my talent. But And yet you're benefiting from it tremendously. Absolutely. What my talent is, which took me a long time to figure out, by the way, it's not like you just figure it out, um, is building teams and empowering people. Mm. So I've, mm. I am lucky to be surrounded by some really good people who believe in what we're doing and I give them what they need to be able to get out there and do it. All right. Building teams profoundly powerful. I love this topic. And one of the things I'm just realizing, I'm connecting some dots. You had some, some level of status and authority at the, at your department, correct? What was your role? I retired as a captain. You retired yeah. as a captain. Was to, to what degree were you porting leadership skills that you learned in that context over here? And to what degree did it not port at all? Yeah. So the fire service is a paramilitary organization. It's very structured. There's ranks, there's order to it and to have success in an organization like that, which by the way is made up with a bunch of type a alpha personalities, not easy people to lead, right? Like if you're going to step up and lead, you better be good and you better be able to take some heat, right? No, no pun intended. Um, cause if you're not those type a personalities will eat you for breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. They'll chew you up and spit you out. So success in the fire service, doesn't necessarily translate to success in business, in my opinion, because if I employed this, the same tactics and strategies that I did in the fire service in my company, mm. frankly, I'd probably scare some people and they, you know, there might be some people who quit, right? Because to be successful in that organization required a certain set of skills, but I personally don't think that, that applied in my company because I've seen owners who do perform like that, right? Mm. They don't get buy-in from the team. They have high turnover. Nobody likes to be, you know, talked down to or, or not believed in. One, What's the essence of it? Just authoritarian? Kind of. Like the fire department micromanages. It's how it's designed. It's how all the SOPs are written. And because I grew up in there, in that world, I absolutely detest micromanaging. So I knew for a fact that I am not going to micromanage mm, anybody mm, ever. Mm, mm. Right? Which... Guess what? People don't like to be micromanaged. So. <laughs> which, which is interesting to me still because you're also a systems and a process guy. So, yes. I mean, I we do use systems and process. I don't know what I'd consider myself a, one of those guys. Sure, um, maybe not one of those guys, but the point is you've exerted a non-trivial amount of effort to input that into your business with a, a, a perceived yield delineate that for me, like the micromanagement versus some level of, of management. There's a ditch on so on both sides of that. What's the balance look like? Sure. Absolutely. So I don't want to equate lack of micromanagement to like abdication and everybody do whatever the heck they want. We're mm -hmm. going to play ping pong and who cares if the work gets done or not? Like that's would be the other extreme, right? So I'm big on like setting the expectation letting people know what it is and then letting them manage their days and their work accordingly. And if they step out of like, if somebody steps out of line, which doesn't sound really good, but there's, I have no problem like explaining that to them or showing it to them or, or letting them know like this is acceptable. This is not acceptable, which is a little bit different than micromanaging someone. 
So then contrasting that against what you do proactively want, what does that look like? So I want people to, one, like their job, feel heard, feel a part of the team, buy into what we're doing. And I would say the biggest strides we made as a company was when we, I actually, or I don't say I, that's a little presumptuous, when we got clarity on what the heck are we even doing? Why are we doing this? Why, why do we show up and rent these houses and send these notices and whatever the, the, the day-to-day stuff? Once we put that in and it was through, we use System and Soul, it's a form of EOS. Um, once we identified that stuff, it was shocking to me how the team fell in line. They, they started believing it and it almost sounds like it wasn't true because but it was because it was a long process to get there, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, but once we put that in place, I had to manage even less, mm. which is what you want, right? Like, in, if I'm being totally honest with you, I'm a little bored in my in the management company because it doesn't really need like my day to day is very limited. Like if I don't show up for three days, it's not a big deal. Like everybody kind of does their thing and everyone knows their role. And beautiful, um, beautiful. Which just allows my entrepreneurial side to go, where am I going next? What other bloom, company duh. am I opening and whatnot? But anyway, I don't know if that answered your question or not. I love that. So you're, you're still talk, talking about having order and focus, but it sounds to me like you're using the direction that you're providing at the outset, like high level, big picture outcomes, as you described it, to provide more freedom to your team members so that they are able to run in that autonomous kind of function, but it required investment from you around clarity. Can you tell me just some more tactical stuff around, let's say specifically with the area of policy. Policy sits above process and good uh, policy will flow through to improve processes globally. The opposite is not necessarily true. What are some policies that you feel, feel like have been impactful in the quality of life and the experience that you're enjoying? Well, I mean we have a, what we call a flexible time off policy. So like, if you don't take a couple days off, take a couple days off. Like there's some parameters, like, you know, not everybody can take off at the same time, but just giving people the freedom to focus on their life outside of work pays huge dividends. Um, that's important. I think another thing that we do with all new hires is, which is, I guess it's kind of like a policy. We have this document that we call decision-making guidelines that we literally go over the tenants of our business, these are, this is what an owner is. This is what a tenant is. These are the problems that sometimes mm-hmm. occur. You can make a decision if you're keeping this principle, this principle, and this principle in mind yeah. confidently. Like you don't have to ask permission. If, if you analyze the situation and this is what's going on, make the decision. And those guidelines is like an overriding kind of document that they can apply to a number of different scenarios that which goes back to empowering them, not micromanaging them and teaching them how we think and analyze problems in the organization so they can fit right in and feel comfortable and feel confident and all those types of things. That is juicy. How did you come up with that idea? So I hired an assistant while I was at the fire department prematurely, right? Like if I wasn't at the fire department, I had no business hiring like an executive assistant, but because I was at the fire department and I was outside of my business two to three days a week, I didn't have a choice. And I think that's one of the reasons we adopted systems and, and, uh, processes so quickly is frankly, 
I didn't have a choice. I was gone. Like, how do you think a business is going to run where with a small team where the owner just bounces three days a week? Like that is not a recipe for success. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally makes sense. So I hired this company, I think great assistant, saw him on a podcast. Um, and they did the search, found the assistant, and then did some training. And I think I basically copied. They did this decision-making guideline exercise with me so they could train the assistant on how to figure out what it is I do Got and how it. I think. And then I took that document and developed it over time and took it from there. So tell me some more about it. How long is the document? I think it's like three pages. What would be an yeah. example of some of the, the high-level principles? Yeah, so if there's a problem... Uh, like if there's a dispute with an owner over a charge or some something that we did that there's some ownership of the mistake, you are authorized to come up with a solution up, up to X amount of dollars. That would be one of them. Or if there's ever a dispute between a tenant and an owner and there's no clear right or wrong and it's kind of a gray area, we'll side with our client who we have a fiduciary responsibility to. Or, you know, other like if our clients asking you to do something that, you know, is illegal or wrong, we won't do it regardless of how much pressure they put on you. Those types of things. Mm. Mm. But great investment of time and effort. Well, it was um, it was I basically had to replace myself in my business way before anybody normally would have. And that's what allowed me to still have a business, right? Like, I don't know many businesses that survive if you just bounced 50% of the time, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. that's, you know, not a good idea. But that also forced me to put, forced me to hire remote team members faster. It forced me to put the systems and the processes in place faster. Because, frankly, I didn't have a choice on a lot of the things, which Some is the benefit from how I did it. The pressure. Yeah. Something that's novel to me about the way that you approach the systems and processes is that you had your staff do it. And I find myself kind of, there's a tension there. On the one hand, I'm really clear that the owner needs to be all in and fully supportive and, and in many cases driving that conversation. But I have seen in some instances that it is possible to have the team fully implement as long as the owner is still actively engaged and involved. You chose the latter option. You had your team drive the adoption. Can you tell me about what you did versus what they did and like why you think it was so successful? So... I'm definitely the visionary personality in, in our operation. And I take something like, you know, systems and processes and through my own analysis go, oh, this is what we need. This is a good idea. I'm really good at implementing the best practices in the industry. I'm not smart enough to come up with them on my own, but I'm really good at executing and, and adopting them. So I basically made a decision personally, like we're going to go this direction. And then I bring that to the team, figure out who's the best person. I think when we went on, did that little testimonial for you, it was with my niece who was, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old. And she's the one that figured lead simple out, basically ran the whole thing initially. Um, and I think that if they if they see the conviction from the owner and and the support, like I tell, like you know, obviously today we're always building systems and processes, refining them, technology changes. We just redid our entire website. If anybody on our team is working on something like that, I don't want to say they have an unlimited budget, but 
whatever they need to get the job done is available to them and they know that like i'm i would be foolish to go hey we're gonna adopt this new technology but you have to use the free version if that doesn't work you need to find another free version of something that might work right that's ridiculous like you would be foolish to do that it's hey i think you're amazing i'm stoked you're doing this and whatever you need you have access mm -hmm, to and mm -hmm. if you need to get rid of your day job for a couple of weeks to make this happen i'll make that happen too so mm -hmm. it's just it goes back to believing in your people supporting them empowering them and having the right people okay so when you ask them to do it that's another really key point that's easy to gloss over i mean these people have day jobs right their, mm -hmm. their new job is not being the systems coordinator and manager so you allotted space for them to really take it on as a legitimate project sure sure absolutely even before we implemented eos we had like a, a one monthly thing you would work on and that was the gist of it in the very beginning but yeah i i mean frankly i wouldn't we wouldn't have the company we have if the team wasn't bought in and they weren't giving it all of their best effort you know i view myself as a leader and really in a support function got it all right, and so let's set some some context here. Um, number of units and number of team members. Uh, three hundred and fifty mm -hmm. units, mm -hmm. and we with the maintenance company we just started. We're at twelve. At twelve, and team then members. half of them are remote. Half global. Okay, great. Yeah, that's some helpful context. So you, right now, um, you've built a pretty dope shop, and there's a lot of opportunity in the market right now. Where are you thinking about in that conversation between, on the one hand, coasting, profit, cashing in on this thing versus leaning in, going all in on growth? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's a lot of consolidation and mergers and whatnot going on in the industry. And I've talked to some of those people, but I just left a monster organization with too much structure and I, I'm really enjoying my, the freedom that my business affords mm, me mm. and the create creative outlet mm. that it affords me mm. that I'm not interested in selling. However, I view the business a little bit differently. Like I'm not really comfortable with the amount of risk. I, I'm in California, which is a pretty regulated market. Mm. Um, I'm not comfortable with the risk that the state has, or the, the amount of control that the state has over my business, i.e. the Department of Real Estate, I mean, in our market alone, they came and literally padlocked the door and put a sign on the front that said this business is shut down, right? They to were one of your competitors? One of my competitors. They were doing some shady stuff. And, you know, ideally, we're, we're not doing that. But that's too much control to give up to the government. And I'm not some, like, anti-government conspiracy guy. But I'm not comfortable with that level of risk. So where I see my business going is spinning off ancillary businesses that eventually can face the public and not rely on the management company as a form of risk diversification and to give me optionality when I do get ready to hang it up. So walk me through your thinking there. What, which ones are you looking at? How are you kind of assessing the opportunity in that space? Yeah, so um, we started a contracting company. That one's about a year and a half old. So that's obviously to do the maintenance work and project, you know, remodel type stuff on the properties we have. Um, that one is getting in a better place. Obviously this stuff takes time, right? It's a young company and I've siphoned off my number two guy, like half of his time to the new company and half of his time at the, at the management company. But I've got my eyes on service tape based businesses, like a cleaning company or a landscape company or mm. things along those lines. Mm. 
I'm interested in um, the cleaning aspect, not just to clean our properties when they turn over, but I think there's a real opportunity in the short-term rental space. There's a lot of self-managing short-term rental owners who we can leverage our existing skill set to clean the property, inspect the property, repair the property, all of the boots on the ground stuff at a really high level and allow the owner of the property who doesn't have to live in our area to run a really effective short-term rental, mm -hmm. which kind of capital at like, obviously in the, in the long-term rental space, self-managing owners control most of the property. They, they manage most of the properties themselves mm -hmm. and professional companies are obviously trying to break into that. I see this as kind of a hedge, you know, kind of getting in bed with them versus trying to compete against them. Mm. So I could easily start the cleaning company and have it survive on the portfolio that we have and then turn it around to face the public in the form of the short-term thing. So th um, that's probably my next one, but I haven't fully decided. So We'll have to check back in, in <laughs> a year from now. I yeah. <laughs> have a check-in episode. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of adjacent opportunity. It's kind of like being at the center of the, the hub, hub yep. and spoke there. There's yep. so many adjacent opportunities that this space represents. You mentioned earlier the team component and being able to be good at building teams. Can you talk to me a little bit about your leadership style and um, the team interactions, how you're running meetings, coaching, et cetera? What, what are you doing to develop your leaders there? Yes, well, specific to developing leaders, we have a like a leadership development group that we run. It's one either it, it varies, but it's once a month or sometimes twice a month. It's a meeting. I lead it. We either discuss like a book or everybody takes like a personality assessment or we're going to, you know, implement something. I'm obviously trying to develop the next crop of leaders for our company because we can't get to the, where we want to go with our plans without some people in some key leadership spots and i would prefer to promote those people from within if at all possible absolutely so that's what we do currently um it's it we're exploring like tracks of progress for people on the org chart like you tell me what you're interested in because the last thing i want is put you in some position that you're going to hate let's have an interactive conversation let's arrive somewhere and then let's build backwards on how we're going to get you there type of a thing and, and it, that resonates with people i mean i don't know anybody who would not like that, you know, I don't think I, well, I, I've never had that. I've never been on the other end of that. So we, so far we've gotten good feedback. It's relatively new. We've been doing it for maybe six months or so, mm -hmm. but how do you handle performance feedback for your team? So we have a monthly one-on-one -on -one meeting and then we do it a quarterly one. So off we have a practice of quarterly rewards. So if, the every, most of the team members have like an objective for the quarter rocks and EOS. And then if they hit those objectives, we have some sort of reward at the end. Um, we, we don't do like, there's no formal review every quarter, but once a year at the end of the year, we'll do like a performance evaluation, but you, I'm, I'm very direct and most people know where they stand with me, which is good and bad. Right. Good for your boss, maybe bad for your relationship. <laughs> so there's no, like, I don't dance around things and issues. And, you know, if there's a problem, we're going to have a conversation about it and deal with it. Mm. Um, I like to think that the team buys into that and performs. And, you know, our people stick around for a long time. 
So maybe that speaks for itself. I don't know. Yeah. I, tenure is obviously a significant factor in that. And you talked about promoting your leaders, being able to build new opportunity for them internally. And that's one of the things that I think about a lot is what is a vision that is compelling enough for people to really mm-hmm. lean in? Mm-hmm. What's a vision that really calls people towards the process of like putting their their current person at risk for the sake of becoming somebody new that's capable of achieving mm-hmm. a big goal. When you think about like motivating your staff members, what do you find are some of the most common goals or motivations that they have that you get to work towards aligning towards outside of just money, which is obviously one significant component of so it. So that's difficult, right? Like if I could figure out and like label what each person needed for motivation, like I've literally asked the question, but that's a difficult question to answer. Well, hundred um, percent. Yeah, that's tough. I will say this. Um, when you hire a players, you're foolish to think they're going to sit at work with you for the next 25 years, right. Sure. And retire with a golden handshake. Sure. So I just had this conversation the other day with our, with our BDM. It's like, look, I know you're great at what you do. Your resume speaks for itself. Your performance speaks for itself. You know, you're great at what you do. You know that you could probably leave here tomorrow and get a better job with higher pay and doing something in a totally another different field. All I'm saying to you is I'm here to support you. I want to be part of the conversation because you never know what the next opportunity is in front of you. Maybe, you know, he, he expresses interest in running his own business, having a company. Well, let's have that conversation. Yeah. The time yeah, comes. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, the only thing that's going to limit our growth is my ability to motivate and retain people to help me get there. Cause I, for sure, I'm not gonna be able to do it by myself, nor do I yeah, really want yeah. to. But can you so. create the container and the opportunity to keep staying in relationship, even if it's a different form or mm-hmm. capacity? Yeah, for sure. Well said. That's, you know, when I'm, one of the things I'm trying to work in towards and a yardstick of success for me is my ability to maintain my care for my team members in the midst of hard conversations about performance where I've got some direct feedback and, and the results of the feedback may be that we don't work together anymore. For me to maintain care for people in those moments, that's kind of the bleeding edge of, of growth and my interest and in like, um, who I'm becoming as mm-hmm. a person. How do you navigate and manage performance conversations which are real and have to be had while still caring about somebody as a person? Yeah, I think that's a that's a difficult balance to get to. I mean, if you figure that out, you write a book and retire. Um, <laughs> your felt experience though, right? I mean, yo, it's, absolutely. it's not academic. It's like, what's your... Yeah, so I... We just had to let somebody go two weeks ago mm. that wasn't performing. Um, but to be able to do it and and then have them, I don't want to say be happy, but be amicable and think that you are Treat there them for fairly. them. Actually, I take that back. Well, we did let somebody go, but um, our marketing assistant who's remote is um, lives just on the other side of the U.S. border. She goes to school in the States, just got her work visa for the States. Mm she's going to get a U.S. job and same conversation, like, great. Like, I would do the exact same thing if I was you. You're new to the U.S. labor market. Like, let me help you. Like, I want you to get the best possible job you can get. Mm. 
for for you and just because it's the right thing to do you don't have you know you've never navigated this on in the states let me be you know a guide for mm, you mm. knowing full well that she's gonna leave i think the end of may is her her date but she's really good and i've already had the conversation with her that hey we're gonna cross paths again at some point and be open to that. Yeah. So, cause it, it goes back to like, I, we, you need to surround yourself with really good people. And mm-hmm. if you have someone and they need to take a little side journey, yeah, totally fine. But yeah. as long as they, you know, know that they can come back and you keep the relationship good. I think that's, that's what matters. Just the less gripping involved, you know, gripping is like the controlling of mm-hmm. like, it's got to happen this way instead of staying open to a lot of different possibilities. If you can press into the conversation past the point that it may not be now. Mm. And I like that approach. Um, man, my staff is, it's the area of focus and opportunity for me. If they can level up, if they can get to the next level, knowing that they get to keep that value. This is one of the mental paradigms for me is a team member that's upskilling the skills are theirs. Like they own them. If they leave, they're taking them with them. Mm-hmm. I get a huge amount of joy and satisfaction in knowing that my business will directly and immediately benefit from the skills that they accrue. And so will they, even if they're not here, just like globally, that's like the next version of them. Well, it's doing the right thing, right? Like you should make a positive impact on your team and you should be happy that they're making themselves better. And if they go deliver those services somewhere else, great. I mean, with obvious parameters, right? Like, but, and if you're hiring the right people and they're doing the right thing too, it, yeah. it, it works. It's, yeah. it's when you hire the wrong person and they don't share the value and that it sometimes goes sideways on you. But um, yeah, well said for sure. What are you doing in terms of growth for the business? What's uh, uh, We've had that conversation before, yeah. but give me an update. So like I was saying, I'm really good at like executing on a plan, mm-hmm. not the best at like inventing a plan. So um, Marcus Sheridan, they ask you answer. Classic. Running that playbook, like I don't say to a T because we could always do better, but that is the playbook that I'm running on the marketing side. Oh, great. Give me the deets, man. Yeah. So we have a full-time content creator. Um, and we're in the process of hiring our first video editor graphic person. Mm. So we have metrics around like how much content we create. Wow. That, that, that right there tells you a lot. You said 12 people in the company and there's going to be thir- so 13 when you hire the next and two of them will effectively be in marketing. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So one full-time BDM and then two marketing people. Wow. And honestly, I would, I, I would hire more if the budget would allow it. That but, says um, the whole story right there. Just <laughs> what, what that says the whole story. Wow. Okay. So talk to me. So you, you're making a significant investment. Talk to me about yield payoff. How are you measuring whether it's working? Yeah. So we, we belong to profit coach. So like customer acquisition, all that stuff, we're pretty clear on what it is in my business, but the dummy like metric is how many lead, how many organic leads are coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Leads you didn't pay for. Leads you did not pay for because we pay for leads too. And we're about like 30 to 40 a month, which doesn't sound like a lot to me. But if you ask some other people who get Juicy. five to 10, yeah. that matters. And yeah. I know what we were getting before we started the strategy. Which was? 
probably 10 to 15 is my guess. Okay. So but you, it, we've been at it for two years and it's, it's a slow roll and it takes slow, but steady. Or did it peak at some point? No, it's never peaked. So I want it to peak. I want it to. (laughs) You want the hockey stick. (laughs) But it's not happening, right? And I don't know that it's ever going to happen. Yeah. But I'm still committed to it because we're going on two years. Um, And yeah, that's our that's our our shtick when it comes to growth. But we also do a podcast, which um, is a lead generation tool of sorts. You know, our customer is almost exclusively accidental landlords. Okay, great. How many episodes are you in now? I think 52, 51, somewhere around there. Now, I may have shared with you my thesis that a good podcast, when well executed, should have value for both parties, even if it's never published, just based on who you're talking to, mm-hmm. the rapport, the experience, the container of this kind of a conversation as opposed to, can I pick your brain to talk about X, Y, Z? I want to hear both about the leads that have come from it, but just first, what have you gotten relationally from who you've been able to connect with? So this is the part that fascinates me. Like if I pick up the phone and cold call the majority of the guests, never going to take the call yet. My marketing person puts a request in, they take that, they respond to that. Like we had the CEO of bigger pockets on the podcast. I mean, Joshua Dorkin. Okay. the, The new got it. Yeah. I never could have picked up the phone and called that guy. And here he is coming on the podcast or I've had politicians on the podcast. It just blows my mind. (laughs) They would never answer me. (laughs) Yet they think they're, and this is like the misunderstanding of podcasts. You you hear a podcast that's professionally edited and produced and you're like, oh, this is great, man. I'm like going to be somebody. I'm famous now. They don't know that the podcast is literally like, one person helping set it all up and a conversation and that's it. Like, yeah. There's no guarantee of an audience on the other end, right? In fact, our podcast, I think, underperformed, right? I haven't cracked the nut of, of the Listeners. podcast taking off, right? <laughs> but it does give you a certain amount of credibility. Oh, so, yeah. It's a platform. And we use it. I think the biggest benefit we've gotten is the compression of the sales cycle, not necessarily like a steady flow. Dude, of man, pro. You're really getting me with these. These are some some hits right here. Absolutely. That's marketing and sales 101. Using the content to get a deal to close quicker and to increase the conversion rate. That has tremendous value, even if it doesn't serve the lead gen purpose. Correct. So I would say it's, I don't want to say no leads because there's been some leads, but very few on the lead generation. Got it. But up to this point, up to this point, and I'm not giving up, but it's sometimes it's discouraging. Like, how come we're not getting 15,000 downloads an episode? You know, like I want to do the best. I want to perform the best. Well, 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 all right. So for those listening, what's the name of the podcast? The Accidental Landlord. The Accidental Landlord. And who is it targeted towards? Accidental Landlord. The Accidental Landlord. (laughs) (laughs) So the guests, um, what's your mix of guests? So we have... Accidental landlords. We have the professionals that serve accidental landlords, yeah. the lawyers, the the insurance people. The uh, we don't. I don't. I'm definitely not doing what you're doing, which is bringing on property management space professionals. Yeah, I've had one or two okay. where where I can make the correlation yeah, to the accidental yeah, yeah, yeah. landlord, but the accidental landlord is exactly what it sounds like. They're trying to figure out what they don't know. So I've brought on tenants because I think. Getting into the tenant's brain is a big part of figuring out how to be a better landlord. Okay, so are you talking primarily this is directed towards self-managing owners? Is that what I'm hearing? Or not necessarily? I don't think we differentiate between a self-managing and someone who uses a management company. Although we definitely have a lot of content on 
surrounding good property management and whether you should have it or not. Yeah. That's part of the challenge of targeting an accidental landlord. They don't all hang out in the same place. They don't all like self-identify with what their issues are. They're kind of hard to target. So I'm just, I mean, frankly, we're shooting in the dark trying to figure out what content resonates with them. Yeah. What people like to hear. Yeah. But if I had to give you like in a nutshell, what I've learned in the podcast after 50 episodes for the accidental landlord, it's treat your rental property like a business. It's the same thing that comes up every time from the attorneys to the um, insurance people to we had an institutional, a guy who ran 60,000 units on the podcast, the last one we did. And that was fascinating because in my mind, if you're running 60,000 units, you are like at the top of your game. You have it all figured out. It's all like in a spreadsheet down to minute details and all these levers and things you can push. That wasn't the case. He's like, we actually have the same access to the information that you have. And we just have the luxury of a lot of money coming in so we can hire people and let them specialize in these positions. But it's basically the same thing you're doing. Mm. It was, I was, what I was trying to get out of him was, what knowledge can you share that can help an accidental landlord be more professional or mm. less accidental? Mm. And it wasn't as like revealing as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I've had experiences like that before as well. I love the, the candid share about the podcast. That was like a really like great little reality snapshot into that window. To me, that falls in a category of there's a subset of strategies that pe everyone's heard about, but only some people have made the leap. Mm -hmm. um, an extreme example of that would be radio as an example, right? And we've had that conversation. Like mm -hmm. there's a small number of people doing that and making it work, but it's an extremely small number. Podcasting is like, that's a slightly more done thing, but still pretty limited. Um, I don't know that anybody's fully cracked the nut on that, but mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm really interested partly because I'm a podcaster and partly because let know. me bring up one of our strategies and I got a lot of hate for this. Um, hate's a strong word. A lot of people telling me do not do this. Um, you're familiar with what house hacking is? Yes. For if anybody doesn't know, it's basically you buy a house or one strategy of house hacking is you buy a house, you live in one room and you rent all the other rooms out. Mm -hmm. And if you're really good at it, you convert space into more rooms. So it's like a little multifamily house and every room's rented out individually. Property management companies don't want anything to do with this for obvious reasons, like heavy on the tenant conflict side, a lot of issues related to that. But people are doing this all day, every day in our market, in, in every market, really. It's a very popular strategy and a, and a relatively simple one to do. Where, where we live, the average house is $900,000 for a three bedroom, two bath. So it precludes the professional investor, unless you're like on the institutional side, which wouldn't be my client anyway from getting involved. And one, our why in our company is we believe that everybody has the right to achieve financial freedom. Going on a sidetrack here, but and in our business, our average customer demographic is someone who, you know, 55 to 60, professional, decent income, and that's who we serve. Well, that, our why is a lie. Because it doesn't really, we don't really support everyone achieving financial freedom. So I'm like, okay, this doesn't resonate. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to really, really live this? Why? And that's where we arrived at house hacking because house, uh, a traditional house hacker is someone getting into real estate investing, doesn't have the net worth, doesn't have deep pockets, 
but is trying to bootstrap it and figure it out. Well, they're not served by professionals. They have to do it on their own. Mm. So I want to build an ecosystem in our area. In fact, we're starting a, a meetup, a house hack meetup, and where they can go, I'm interested in house hacking, and we can walk them through the process. Obviously, opportunities for revenue every step of the way. And then, I don't want to say co-manage, but kind of co-manage it with them with the hopes that they move out of the house a year or two later and go do it again, and then we manage the house hack. Well, the operational challenge and difficulties and, and the source of all the negative feedback I got was, I would never manage a roommate situation where you had five roommates living in one house. That would be a nightmare. And I, t- I tend to agree with them, but that is the nut to crack. You figure that out, and guess what? We're going to charge more than we charge to manage a, a regular house of with course. one family in it. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be worthwhile from a ROI perspective, but we're going down that path which I don't know any of my colleagues who are interested in doing that. And a lot of them were like, you're crazy. Don't do that. And we're doing it and we'll see what happens. So glutton for punishment over here. <laughs> what, I don't know, what do you think of that? Oh, uh, I think that sounds like a um, blue and red ocean at the same time. It sounds like there's upside there. You just got to figure out how much complexity you're going to have to ingest in order to do it well. I think it's it's probably an example of something that um, is poorly understood and therefore there's a disproportionate level of aversion that's not tied to an objective understanding of the thing. Mm-hmm. Like had you done it and then said you didn't want to do it is very different than saying it's a bad idea and you've never done it. So I think you're going to be a lot more informed 12 <laughs> months from now than we are right now. <laughs> I look forward to getting that, that update from yeah, you. I yeah. hope the juice is worth the squeeze. We'll see. We'll find out. And if it's not, it's it's not. And we'll pivot and go somewhere else. But just the just working with the attorneys to because it's it presents a whole different dynamic. Not only is my client my client live in the house, he's also kind of a tenant in the house, which flips upside down a lot of the systems and processes that are in place. So there's a lot to it. All right, man. (laughs) We're definitely gonna be doing an update on this in the future. Let's leave it there. Thanks for coming on and just sharing about your story and your journey, man. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.